The reading for today's sermon comes from the book of Acts, chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain at your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful Father, teach us to fear you, we pray. Particularly this day as we gather in your presence, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Teach us to keep your commandments. Teach us to love you, we pray. Teach us to be those who, when we gather to you, are renewed and strengthened and blessed as we experience your mercy, and not those who hide the truth and bring upon ourselves such terrible judgment as this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Let me uh, add my welcome, especially to those of you who are visiting today. We have a healthy gaggle of guests and visitors who are here for the baptism of the latest Master Turner. It is wonderful to have you with us. We're glad you could make it. And we're hopeful that you'll be blessed by being here as we are, just having a chance to see you guys. My goal today with this sermon is twofold. I want first to exhort you all to truthfulness and to integrity and to honesty in all of your dealings with one another, within the church, within your families, especially within marriage, in your business relationships and everywhere else. And second, I want to encourage holiness in all of life by warning you that the truth of our actions will be made known. Those two lessons, it seems to me, 
flow from this passage of Scripture. On the occasion of one of the most disturbing episodes in the book of Acts, this is the first great sin in the book of Acts. Remember, we had some, well, the first great sin within the church, perhaps I should say. We had the the clear-up of Judas's betrayal in chapter 1, and we've got the opposition from the leaders of the old covenant people of God in chapter 3 and 4. But what we haven't had yet is anything within the community. And it is very striking to me, as it has been to many commentators, some of whom have described this as the church's original sin, that it should concern lying. You just, if you've been with us for any uh, length of time, uh, which is most of us, I think, Uh, You'll know that uh, we've been working our way through the book of Acts um, and the church has been established, the spirit has been poured out at Pentecost and in spite of opposition it's been growing steadily and wonderfully, more spectacularly than steadily in chapters 3 and 4. And there's this problem in the background that we noticed last week. If you remember at the end of chapter 4, there's this narrative from verse 32 to 37 which explains that the full number of the believers were sharing things And the reason was in particular because there were a series of famines in the first century in in Jerusalem and Israel and actually across the ancient world. Um, They're hinted at actually in chapter 6, verse 1, which speaks as though we're supposed to know about it of the daily distribution, which is a distribution of food, which was necessitated by the fact that there was food shortages. And so what happened was, from time to time it got so bad that those in the community who had more resources, who had more wealth, would sell something. And so you see it's in verse 34. As many as were owners of lands or houses, it's from time to time, is the sense of the verb in verse 34, they sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had need. And there's one particular example of this, verse 36 and 37, who's Barnabas, the Levite from Cyprus, who sells a field, and brings the proceeds of that sale, lays it at the feet of the apostles, so that the church as a whole may experience not the old covenant blessing of fields around Jerusalem, but the new covenant blessing of being one in spirit and receiving the goodness of God showered upon them, in this case, at the hands of one another. What a way for a Levite to be, to leave behind his old covenant ministry his old covenant land aspirations and voluntarily bring this additional above the tithe gift so that his brothers and sisters who were less wealthy in him might not starve but would experience within the community the love that comes from being one in Christ. And at this point, with this community united and flourishing in spite of the opposition, you get this truly appalling sequence of events. When Ananias and Sapphira conspired together and they told what they must have thought was just one little white lie. What harm could it do? I mean, we're being generous after all. We didn't need to sell the property at all. And They brought some of the proceeds whilst giving the impression they were bringing it all. And it turns out that there's no such thing as a little white lie. There's the truth. You're allowed to do that. There is, of course... Uh, not telling everything to every person you meet all the time. I mean, truthfulness does not entail entire disclosure of everything about ourselves all the time. We'd be here for quite a long time. Um, But of course, 
what we're dealing with here is not withholding information where there's no need to disclose it. What we've got here is withholding information deliberately, deceptively. This is not one of those very rare righteous lies, righteous deceptions, Rahab, Israelite midwives in Egypt. This is concealing the truth, deception, lying. And there's no such thing as a white one. And I want to highlight, if I may, two strands of what are going on here. If you've got your orders of worship, you may find this helpful, um, just as we navigate through the next few minutes. Uh, There are two strands to what Ananias and Sapphira did. And and the first, their deception, is right there on the surface. And then there's a more kind of under-the-surface thing we'll have to look at. And in both cases, it seems to me, we're learning some significant things and being... Well, especially in the second case, we're learning some things about the character of the church itself, which may not be intuitive or obvious to us, but which I think will be helpful. So, just with our eye on that outline, notice the first thing that they did. They brought upon them such ruin, they lied to the Spirit of God. Let me show you. Uh, It is quite important to get clear the nature of the sin that Ananias and Sapphira committed, the sin was not that they didn't give enough. It wasn't a lack of generosity that was the problem. Recall that the offerings that are mentioned in the end of chapter 4 were voluntary. This wasn't a failure to tithe, that is, to give what belonged to God. This was, as is highlighted a number of times, I'll show you in a second, this was lying about what they had done. Just look with me, verse 1, and we'll walk through this together. A man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, it's worth noticing that, they're both in it together. There we are. Think back, where have you seen this before? Husband and wife sin. Yeah, we'll come to that in a few minutes' time. Sold a piece of property, and with his wife's full knowledge... He kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, we're going to come back to this little phrase in a moment, a few minutes as well. They kept back some of the proceeds. But you notice what they did. They, they, they partly did what Barnabas had done, sold some land. But instead of bringing the whole thing and laying it at the apostles' feet, it was as though they were trying to create the impression that that's what they're doing when in fact they weren't. They brought part of it, laid it at the apostles' feet. And they're confronted by Peter, verse 3. But Peter said, not, Ananias, why didn't you give enough? What did he say? Look with me. Ananias, why has Satan so filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? And then he underscores it by highlighting it was all about, they they were free to do what they wanted, but they misled, sought to mislead him, the apostles, the whole of the church. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? It was up to you what you did with it. And after it was sold, you had the money. Was it not at your disposal? Why is it? Why have you contrived this deed in your heart? Can you see, it's very important that we get clear. The, the, The problem here was not that... Having wealth and seeing other people's need, they didn't sell everything. The problem was they pretended to have sold, sorry, they, they, they sold the whole of a piece of property and they pretended to have brought the whole of the proceeds. 
when in fact they'd only brought a part of it. The amount in itself was not the issue. It was the lying to which Peter drew attention. And you see this when you, when you compare it with Barnabas. So it looks like there's an attempt to give the impression that they, like this righteous Levite, are giving of all they have. So verse 36, Joseph, who was called Barnabas, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money, whereas they brought only, verse 2, a part of it. Can you see the difference? It's intriguing because... Um, I know you, you get to this point, verse 4, and don't you want to ask, like, how on earth did Peter know? <laughs> it's kind of disturbing, isn't it? And actually, this is a hint of something that lies under the surface of this narrative, that we are being placed in the position of not really fully knowing what's going on here. In a passage which is all about the truth being withheld, and so that disorienting feeling, my goodness, how did, that's not a, a feeling that the passage resolves. We could probably answer it by speaking of uh, supernatural prophetic insight given to the apostles and so on. And that, that's almost certainly what happened. But the passage doesn't help us out. The passage leaves us with this sense of slightly bewildered, how did he know? And isn't it slightly frightening? Well, Peter just knew? Yes ever so slightly frightening. Hence, twice, verse 5, verse 11, great fear came upon all the people who heard of these things. Now, look, the, the narrative continues, verse 5. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and breathed his last. And, of course, you then get all the usual speculations about did he have a heart attack? Did he, was he shocked? And or something terrible. Who knows? The, the biology, the mechanisms here are not at issue. The point is, this is a divine act of supernatural judgment against a man who thought he could withhold the truth from the Spirit of God. How did he do that? Well, hint about where we're going. Because he withheld it from the Spirit-filled church. We'll come to that in a few minutes' time. The young men rose up and wrapped him and carried him out and buried him. And then verse 7, the narrative continues... After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened, and Peter gave, it's interesting, he gave her the opportunity one last time to distance herself from the deception. Tell me, uh, whether you sold the land for, and so much is not what Peter said, obviously, he would have named a figure. Tell me whether you actually sold the land. Did you really sell the land for 50,000? And she said, yeah, it was 50,000 knowing that it was actually 123,000. But Peter said to her, how is it that you've agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who've buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Same verb, carry out, carry out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last as well. So they lied with consequences that they cannot conceivably have imagined. And really, this before we look at more of the details, and you will have probably spotted all kinds of hints of connections to other texts of Scripture, 
Before we jump into that, I do want to think a little bit just about what we've thought so far, this really tragic and, and so painfully unnecessary situation. Recall, this was not a tithe that they were required to give. There were still people in the church at this point who owned houses who didn't sell them. We know that because they've still got the houses later in the book of Acts. The sin was not that you didn't give enough. It, it would have been completely fine. Imagine the situation. Imagine if they'd said, um, uh, listen, um, Peter, we, we recently sold a, a piece of property and we'd like to offer a portion of what we've um, recouped from this to, to the church. We, you know, um, stocks went up in November and we've done reasonably well with our uh, investments in 2023. And, um, uh, so we, we've actually sold some property and, and uh, we, we wanted to offer an extra gift to the church. We know, you know, planting a church in Granbury, there'll be un the unknown unknowns, you know, all the th and, and we wanted to just offer a portion of what the Lord has blessed us with. Praise be to God. What, what kindness, what, what grace, what a way to show gratitude and to, to share with others the blessings that we've been blessed with. But no, it wasn't, it wasn't enough. They, they wanted, and this is, Pastor Shaw pointed this out, and we were talking about it on Friday, it's a kind of virtue signaling. They wanted to be like him, but without being like him, Barnabas. Can you see? There's this, you've seen it immediately, the strongly implied comparison. Here's a man who sold a field and brought it all, the son of encouragement, whom Luke introduces here, Barnabas, as a guy who's going to be really significant as the narrative of the book of Acts unfolds. And it's like, wow. And so here are two people who just pretended just trying to telegraph virtue without possessing it. It's a really um, unnerving thought, isn't it? What, what really matters to us most? Godliness or the appearance of godliness? There is a biblical and certainly a confessional imperative to preserve our reputation. Uh, the ninth commandment about truthfulness is expounded by the Westminster divines in this way. We should be concerned for other people's reputation and we should be concerned to preserve our own reputation. So if, you know, if, if you're lied about, then it's actually a fine and righteous thing to, to at least somewhere try and set the record straight. And certainly if somebody else is lied about, you should set the record straight. If somebody is criticized unfairly, it's right that their reputation for godliness should be reinstated. But here's the thing, what happens, what really matters, reputation? the appearance of godliness, or actual godliness. It's very striking. In those three short chapters of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, right in the middle, remember what he warns us about? Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be seen by them. It's not beware of practicing unrighteousness. 
But beware of cultivating and seeking to cultivate and being concerned above all else with cultivating appearances. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men in order to be seen by them. And then he expounds it at length, doesn't he? When you give to the needy, when you pray, when you fast, don't do any of this stuff in such a way that you could possibly be tempted to be concerned about just cultivating appearances. Because it is such a perilously dangerous road to go down. I, I suspect there's something really dangerously appealing about this. And it's perverse, isn't it? Because the magnitude of the appeal increases in accordance with the degree to which godliness is prized. Think about that for a second. In a, in a church community where nobody cares about righteousness, nobody cares about godliness, nobody cares about generosity, perish the thought. But let's imagine there were such a church community, nobody's going to be particularly tempted to cultivate an image of it. Why would you bother? But precisely in places where people are most sacrificial, most gracious, most generous, the temptation is most strong to cultivate an appearance of those things without the power of them, as Paul says to Timothy. What really matters to us, if, if nobody ever knew about your service, your generosity, your gifts, would you still do it? And part of this is it reflects how lying, lying relates to other sins. Have you noticed this? If, if you've not noticed it, I can draw it to your attention with a thought experiment. Just imagine for a moment if the way the world worked was like this. Every time a sinful thought entered your head, every time a sinful word crossed your lips, every time you committed a sinful deed, imagine if everybody knew, or everybody in whose eyes your reputation matters knew. Imagine if for every pastor that would be everybody in their congregation, all the other pastors in their denomination, probably a bunch of other people besides. Imagine that, my goodness. But, but imagine for yourself, who are the people in whose eyes you are, and rightly, concerned to preserve your reputation? And imagine if the moment a sinful thought, word, or deed crossed your mind, passed your lips, entered your life, they all knew. Well, the first thing that would happen is that most of those words and deeds and quite a lot of the thoughts would never take place, isn't it? If everybody knew, this is how accountability software works on phones, right? Because it notifies your wife, or better still, your mother-in-law. Just try explaining that. But, but imagine if it could be extended. Imagine if every time you were slacking off at work, a little bell went off on your boss's desk and the telly screen, 1984, flicked on. And he could see you playing snaky on your internet browser or whatever it is. You know what I mean? It's, like, it's just, well, you just, you, you, by lunchtime, you'd be absolutely brain fried from how intensely you were working. Because, and it's just fascinating, I think, that so much... 
So much sin happens because we think nobody will know. You really want to lie awake at night. Imagine if you reverse the thought experiment. Imagine if you had 24 hours and you could do whatever you liked and nobody would ever know. Some of you younger people are thinking, oh, I can't think what I'd do, actually, apart from eating lots of candy. <laughs> Some of you are older and you can think how, as you think, hold on a second, my goodness. And you realise, the more you apply your mind to that question, what would you do if you could guarantee nobody would ever find out, not even God? Honestly, it scares me. Uh, there have been one or two moments when I would have done something really terrible. And I was, in truth, held back by the reality that I'd never get away with that. And what we're seeing in this passage, actually, is it's like eschatology is foreshortened. Because what, you know what's going to actually happen on the Day of Judgment? That first thought experiment. The day of judgment is not the day on which God gets us all together and tries to figure out what to do with us. The day of judgment is the day when he gets us all together and discloses all the things that we and everybody else have done. It is a day of unveiling. It is a day of revelation. God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing. And of course it has to be this way because God has to be vindicated as righteous for the sentence he passes on unforgiven sins, which means he has to make clear what the evidence is on which the sentence is based. So he has to publicize the offenses. And of course, he glorifies Christ by showing what it is in us that's been forgiven. But yes, yes, even those forgiven sins, 1 Corinthians 4, 5, the Lord will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. We're actually living in that first thought experiment just with a delay built in. And with Ananias and Sapphira, the de delay was just switched off. It's like foreshortened eschatology. And that's why it's so frightening. And that's why it ought to be so frightening for us to contemplate that day. It ought to purify our lives, the thought that everybody will see. This is actually why, you can, this connects to other doctrines in so many illuminating ways. This is why godliness is about living by faith. Yeah? Faith is being sure of uh, what you hope for and certain of what you don't see, Hebrews 11. And part of that is trusting things that can't be seen because they're invisible, like God is there. You, 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 we, by faith we understand that God is there. But part of it is trusting that things are going to happen that haven't happened yet. This is why that, that catalogue of the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11, they're all people who looked ahead to something that it couldn't be seen because it hadn't happened yet. Yeah? So faith looks ahead to the future and lives in the present in the light of what is going to happen. So, you look ahead to the Day of Judgment. How do you live in the light of that? What? That day is the day when all the secrets of my heart, all the words uttered in secret, all the deeds done that I don't yet think that many people know about, are disclosed. We live by faith by allowing that knowledge to track back into the present. 
That's what faith is. How are you going to live by faith? You see that the, the intimate connection between faith and deeds at this point. You cannot believe that on the last day God will tell everybody everything and not have it change you now. So it's, yeah, great fear. Now, I don't want to send anybody home in despair because let me tell you, there's going to be a whole catalogue of, oh my word, near endless catalogues of sins which will simultaneously bring tears to our eyes on that day and put joy in our hearts as we see them as forgiven sins. It's a day on which the, the mercy of Christ will be magnified in us and to us. To the degree that he exposes sins in us now. To, he exposes sins that we've done now, then. But what, should we sin all the more that grace may abound? Uh-uh, no, we, that's, that's not what we do. How much better on that day, how much better would it be for, you've got this long catalogue of sins, and then uh, the Spirit of God is glorified by showing the things that he's held you back from and the good deeds that he's drawn you to by raising in your mind the spectre of that day. Christ is glorified even more in, our, in the righteousness that the Spirit promotes in us, mercifully. So, they lied to the Spirit of God, and the future was brought into the present and great fear gripped everyone. Now, I wanted to spend a few minutes, just as we come to a conclusion, looking more briefly at the second strand of this. It's a little more complicated connecting bits of the Bible together, but it's no less illuminating, I don't think. So, the second theme is this. They profaned God's holiness. I want to show you what I mean by this and where where I'm uh, driving at here. Look with me more closely at verses 2 and 3. It's helpful if you've got your Bibles. Just glance down there. Notice twice it says... They kept back, or Ananias kept back for himself. Twice it says that. Now, this is not the first time that somebody has kept something back. This is a very rare word. It's in the New Testament, it's only here twice, once in Titus 2, and it appears only one time in the entire Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it's in a very striking place. Some of you, if you've noticed other parallels, might be able to guess where it is. It is... In the beginning of Joshua chapter 7, with the sin of Achan. You remember the sin of Achan? So during the conquest of Jericho, a whole bunch of things had been captured. In Joshua 6, 18 and 19, it explains that there's a bunch of stuff which is holy to the Lord. This is to be given to him. So anything made of gold, silver, bronze or iron goes into the treasury of the Lord for his service. But Achan kept back, it says. I mean, in my translation it says... Um, he took, but the, the word is the same Greek verb here. So this is a self-conscious way of connecting the events of Joshua 7 with the events of Acts 5. And once you see that, you realise, oh yeah, that's not the only connection. Because the whole family was involved in the sin. Great fear gripped the people. Achan and those with him were put to death. There was secrecy that was exposed. All these parallels. And what's fascinating then is that helps us to see something about the nature of the church, which 
we've hinted at in the book of Acts so far, but we haven't actually brought into the open in detail. What's happening in Joshua chapter 7 is that the sin involves Achan keeping for himself something that's holy, which ought to be put to holy use. Gold and stuff like that. And that's what's happening in Acts 5. This gift that Ananias and Sapphira pledged was, at the point that they pledged it, holy. It's an offering. That's why it's said to be brought. That's a sacrificial term. Barnabas, the Levite, who does sacrifice stuff for a living, brought this offering. And having so designated it, he's saying this whole thing belongs to God, and he gave the whole thing to God. But Ananias and Sapphira did the same thing, with the one exception they didn't bring the whole thing. They kept back part for themselves, and so they did what what Achan did in the book of Joshua. They kept back something holy from the holy presence of God. Where was the holy presence of God? In the church. Which is, of course, what's going on in the book of Acts. This is the theme that we'd not, I've not yet drawn attention to, but I want to highlight it for you. Do you notice that the book of Acts is about the building and divine filling of a new temple? In the Old Covenant, God gives specific instructions for constructing holy places, and then his presence fills them. And they're holy now. Exodus 40, I think 1 Kings with the, the temple construction. Well, here he does the same thing. Chapter 1, explicit instructions for the reconstruction of not a building, but a community of people. Draw lots to replace Judas with Matthias. Chapter 2, what happens? Well, now that the thing has been rebuilt, it can be filled with the presence of God, the Spirit of God. Chapters 3 and 4, is interestingly, they're, they're still in the old temple, It says in chapter 3, verse 11, they're in Solomon's portico. Later in chapter 5, it'll say they're in the same place. What's actually happening is God is building a new holy temple, the church, and it starts out in the old temple. It's constantly in the temple, day after day, in the old covenant temple. And what's going to happen, chapter 8, verse 1, they're going to be thrown out of that temple. And in the meantime, you've got to choose between them. Are you going to be devoted to the old temple? covenant order which is in the process of of collapsing and being brought down or are you going to be a member of this new covenant holy community are you going to bring your offerings there Barnabas did, these guys, Ananias and Sapphira didn't, it's fascinating the the last time anything happens in the temple in the book of Acts, chilling chapter 21 verse 30 Paul is dragged out of the temple and the gates were shut so the whole of the book of Acts is this movement of the new temple, this holy community of people, out of the old covenant temple, which is ceasing to be holy, and out into the world. Which makes sense of the other comparisons that perhaps occur to you when you're looking at Acts chapter 5. Here are people who profane holy things and die immediately. Nadab and Abihu, Uzziah, kind of similar to Elisha and Gehazi, isn't it? When he goes to get money from Naaman the Syrian and experiences the judgment of God in consequence. And so, 
What do you do? What do you do with somebody who, by lying to the Spirit of God, profanes the holiness of the community? Look closely. Verse 6. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Uh, a friend of mine, very fine scholar, Matthew Sleeman, I've mentioned before, did his, his second PhD on the, the way that geographic and spatial categories work in the book of Acts. And it's an obvious thing to do because ascension of Jesus at the beginning to a different space, and then in the book of Acts, the Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. There are lots of spatial categories in the big picture of the book of Acts. But these things also work on the smaller scale. What happens here is the dead body of Ananias is carried out of the holy community. This is what you do with sin that profanes the holiness of the people of God. You take it away. It's what, it's what excommunication is. Excommunication it takes place when somebody has voluntarily chosen to cut themselves off from the living God by profaning the holiness of his people, and so they're actually cut off. Same thing happens to Sapphira. Same verb is used, verse 10. They came in, they found her dead, they carried her out. And so great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. I've spoken a few times in the last couple of weeks about the the character of our worship, how we should approach God in worship. The underlying point has never been about dress code and coffee cups. You'll see that, right? The underlying point is about the holiness of God, the holiness of this church, not this building. I know we refer to it as a sanctuary. I, I have no objection to that. But it's not the building that's holy. It's the people. We are holy. Our deeds are to be holy, which means with truth, with righteousness. And above all, when we come into the presence of God with this, in the right sense, fear-filled reverence for the God before whom we gather. I, I just, it's, it seems to me that Ananias and Sapphira didn't know who they were dealing with. They, they, they tested the Lord, Peter said. Like the Israelites in the wilderness, they tested the Lord, Exodus 17, 7, to see whether he's really among us or not. Turns out he is. He is. So let's not test the Lord in the sense of testing his patience by bringing unholiness in the form of deceit or lies or anything else to him. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, have mercy upon us that we may be gripped with this same fear, realizing that you are a fearful God, an awesome God. And as we approach you in recognition of the perfect, blazing holiness of your character, may we at the same time find you a merciful God, and may your mercy never cause us to take you for granted. 
May we approach you in childlike reverence and joy and fear. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.